I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as we hear in Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning at verse 2. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord God chastens you. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. The New Testament, this reading this morning, comes to us from 1 Corinthians in the 11th chapter, beginning at verse 17 and continuing through verse 22. I invite you once again to listen for a word from the Lord as... It is there written. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Indeed. There have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. A rebuke and an admonition from the Apostle Paul on this day that we celebrate World Communion Sunday. We come together as a congregation, as a denomination, as a a church, as we say, Catholic or universal, because the celebrating of the Lord's Supper is central to this worship service. Our sermon this morning 
And our New Testament reading deals with this topic. However, our text doesn't come to us from the gospel accounts of Jesus' final meal with his disciples, describing who and what, but rather from a later recalling of the event authored by the Apostle Paul as he is writing to his fellow believers in Corinth. And this reading is not rooted in an eyewitness account, but rather in a theological understanding of the meal that had been shared first in the upper room and had become a hallmark of Christian fellowship ever since. In this letter to the Corinthians, Paul is addressing troublesome reports he has heard about the state of their community. There has been, apparently, some acrimony amongst the believers. Imagine that. One of the hallmarks of the way of Jesus was that its followers were drawn from across a broad variety of ethnic boundaries and from socioeconomic backgrounds that differed from differing gender backgrounds and many other backgrounds as well. And such is the way of the cross. But the reality of bringing together folks from disparate backgrounds like these is that by nature, they have less in common. The unifying factor of the church, of course, is her head, Jesus Christ. But the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, comes to this cross from many places. And some of the hardest work of the church happens right here in the church. The apostle has experienced this reality from the Corinthians. He has heard of their struggles The church of Jesus Christ was and is a very unique institution. It drew then and it continues to draw today adherents from across the spectrum. This commingling and combining of so many persons from so many different backgrounds made then and still makes today for tension in the body. In his address to them, the apostle here is admonishing them to put aside the differences they may have in the world, exchanging them for the unity that they have now in Christ. At the table of the Lord's Supper, there was to be no distinction made. All of us are in need. And to meet the need... We are offered the same body, the same blood, the same atoning sacrifice. It was not to be a point of contention, but it seems some had made it so. There were those who wanted to be first. There were those who wanted a larger portion. There were those who wanted a particular menu. Paul is writing to correct them in their understanding of the sacrament. This is not, as good as it smells, a secular banquet. This is a sacred meal. Jesus himself is our host. He is the one 
who sets the menu. He is the one who apportions the elements. He is the one who issues the invitation. And he doesn't send out some that are engraved in gold and some that are engraved in silver and some that are engraved in bronze. They are all written in the same blood. Just as the body of Christ is a shared body, this, the table of the Lord, is a shared table. It is a place around which people who wouldn't meet anywhere else come together. That phrase, come together, is repeated seven times by Paul here in Corinthians. And it also appears nearly two dozen times in the book of Acts. The sense of the disparate being unified has been foundational to the church from the time of her first adherence. There is a practice in our tradition of what we call fencing the table. You may remember that when the Reverend Dr. Bill Sweetser was leading us in the worship celebration, commemorating the 315th anniversary of the completion of this wonderful and historic sanctuary, that during the celebration of the Lord's Supper, this was a part of the liturgy that he used, a liturgy that was popular in the 17th century. And it is biblical, as Paul describes the very process in 1 Corinthians. But the act of fencing the table, as we call it, is properly understood in terms of a spiritual gift of personal introspection and discernment. It wasn't meant to be an external exercise in ecclesiastical power. Even as we seek to democratize access to the sacrament, to open it to the come-heres as well as the from-heres, there are, I think, pitfalls in dispensing with all preconditions. As noted, the practice of self-reflection and discernment is vital to the preparation for receiving communion. I have at various times in my life sat in a service in which communion was offered and refused to take it. For I could not bring myself to have a clear enough conscience to receive what was being offered at that time. I had some work to do before I was ready to receive it. The Lord's Supper remains a sacred rite with elements of mystery, but it is not a completely unknown quantity to us. Recipients ought to understand the significance of the act of gathering around this shared table. And so it makes sense that communion be an act of those who believe, those who have placed their trust in the Lord and been baptized in the name of the triune God who is present with us in the very act of communion, who is both host and sacrifice, a divine unity.
You don't need me to tell you that there are a whole lot of things in this world that are awfully good at creating disunity, at forcing us apart. Fewer are those that bring us together. And none of them has the capacity to do so as much as the one whose table is prepared for us this day. I'll admit that we in the body of Christ don't always do the best job when it comes to unification. Our own denominational pedigree is rife with schisms. Other denominations and even the so-called non-denominational churches have also demonstrated their capacity for separating rather than uniting flocks. Communion is meant in Paul's explanation to be a unifying practice among believers. Those who know why we are called to gather around this table. We are, of course, obligated to teach others who have yet to understand why this act is so special, but participating in it without that knowledge risks exchanging a relational act for a merely transactional one. I think that's part of what Paul was warning against. Members of the spiritual as well as the secular traditions have different interpretations of what a meal means. And this is certainly more than ceremonially secular. And while Jesus instituted this sacrament in the upper room, the bread and the cup that night were part of a much bigger Passover meal, a meal that he was sharing with his friends. And thus, Paul writes of the impropriety of bringing your own food and drink to church and then not sharing it with your brothers and sisters. Doing so shows up the differences in means. While I was in elementary school, I wasn't given lunch money to buy food in the cafeteria. We didn't have that sort of spare change hanging around our house. Instead, my mother sent me to school with a brown bag lunch. And usually, it contained in it a sandwich, white bread, bunny bread, we used to call it, spongy and wet by the time I got to it because it was slathered with our own homemade grape jelly and maybe a little bit of peanut butter to go with it. Every once in a while, on special occasions, I'd get liverwurst. And I would sit at a table with the other brown bag kids while the students with trays of the school's food would hang out on the other side of the cafeteria. The church and her sacrament of communion is meant to be a shared experience with a shared meal at a shared table. We don't bring in our own. It is to be without regard for the structures of the world's segregationalist orders. It is to be about building up community, not disrupting it. A community, it seems, has become even rarer these days than once it was even 
back in my elementary school days. Not all that long ago, I'm sure you can recall the numerous clubs and organizations and leagues that existed, and many of you were probably part of, even before the beginning of the pandemic, people were beginning to notice the trend of these going by the wayside. And they were writing articles and books about the phenomena. Well, certainly, COVID has accelerated the timeline of decay, but the falling away of community was already happening. To be fair, some of the communities that had existed in physical locations and with physical relations have moved online. And it is possible to have a so-called virtual community. Now, we in the clergy community have been challenged over the past two and a half years to examine the meaning and the cultivation of worshiping communities in light of these changing circumstances. We've wrestled with questions about how to officiate at a communion service when the congregation was by choice or by edict not present in the building. These are not academic exercises. They're quite practical and tangible. Community has been at the heart of the faith from the very beginning when Jesus called to himself a discipleship community, working out the details and adapting to the changes that time and circumstances bring is an ongoing work of the church and her people. But what does not change is the one in whom the community is based and the imperative that he has given his followers to join in the ongoing work of building a new community, one which comes together most vividly and powerfully around a shared table over a shared sacred meal. The building of community around the Lord's table in the Lord's house prefigures the community that awaits us in that great age to come. And Christians are called to do just that. To paraphrase one of the oldest and still most poignant sections of our dusty book of order, we are to demonstrate the kingdom of God to the world. The different breads here on display this morning are reminders that though we bring our differences with us as brothers and sisters in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are knit together as one across national, political, societal boundaries, gathered as a single, unified community, the body of Christ, to partake at his invitation in this holy mystery of communion, an act which reinforces the bonds of kinship, one with another and each with Jesus. So as we are about to engage in this privileged high calling, may we do so in a spirit of unity. May our coming together over these shared elements feed our individual bodies and spirits even as it strengthens the bonds of community among us. And for that, we may truly say, thanks be to God 
and amen.